We're going to finish off Matthew 27, the record of the, the Lord's crucifixion. And as never before in these studies, we do need to pray, don't we, as we think about his death. Heavenly Father, we come to you through the Lord Jesus asking for your special blessing again as we try to understand something of what he did, what he achieved and what happened to him, his experience and ultimately its achievement. And Lord Jesus, we pray ahead of time again for your mercy and your patience as we we try in our faltering way to reconstruct what happened. And we pray for your forgiveness wherein we may fail to do that. But we want to try to do this, to attempt this, to reconstruct this to some degree because we love you and because you are the light of our lives and the one upon whom we have staked absolutely everything. And we ask then for your patience, your forbearance, and also the opening of our eyes, that we might know you and make you known. Amen. Well, we finished last time in verse 46 of Matthew 27, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people think that he's calling for Elijah. Now, he said, and it's recorded, Eloi, Eloi. And that's pretty similar to Eliah, Elijah in Aramaic at least. And so, again, you see how the, the records sort of have a congruence. It all sort of fits together in, in, a, in a really quite wonderful way, I think. Because he was beaten, right? His teeth would have been knocked out. Speaking would have been extremely difficult for him with, with problems breathing, nailed in that position. Every word would have been difficult. He was not, in that sense, saying this loudly, I don't think. So, yes, to confuse those two words, Eloi and Eliah, would have been understandable. And so that just fits again for me, that this is not a cunningly de devised fable. This is the inspired record of what really happened. So then, going on, immediately, verse uh, 48, one of them ran and took a sponge uh, and filled it with vinegar and put it up on a reed and gave him to drink. Now, John says it was on a hyssop. Now, hyssop plants are at the maximum 50 centimeters long. That's, you know, like, like half a meter, let's say. Now, that's not very long. That implies that the Lord Jesus was, of course, lifted up on, on, on the cross, but he was not way high up above as the Catholic uh, cathedrals would have us think. You know how they build a church and they put a great big steeple and lift up uh, the, the cross way above us, as if, you know, it's way above us, we poor little mortals who come into church. The idea is, of course, that, that we are nothing and we are dwarfed, as it were, uh, beneath him. But that is not the case, it seems to me, that we're being shown here his humanity, that he was not that far not that far off, each of us. Well, why did he want to, to have the drink? I think it's because he wanted to speak. Now it says in Matthew in verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the spirit. The idea is Jesus crying out again with a loud voice expired or gave up the spirit. His last cry was his giving up the Spirit. And in the other Gospels we read what the words were. Father, into your hands I commend my Spirit, and it is finished. 
and I suggest that it was, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, with which he actually expired. In other words, he had the last breath in, in his lungs, and he breathed this out. And he knew this was it. Once that breath is out of, of my lungs, that's it. And so he gave his life. It was not taken from him. And that we must keep on remembering, because he emphasizes this, that he gave his life. No man takes it from me, I lay it down. And the Greek translated to lay down is related to this word to, to give up the spirit. He handed it over to God. It was not a, a sort of a, a mix of bad luck and, and wicked Jews and, and Romans who, who did this to him, or the human level it was, but he did this himself. He gave it for us. And who was standing there by the cross in the crowd? Weak believers. Peter, you know, he said, 1 Peter 5, 1, that he's a, he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He was there. And John seems to say that he saw it and bore record. Uh, and so that those people represented us. And, of course, he gave out his breath, his spirit, the same word, to us. In the sense of the cross, the crucifixion of the Lord is the essence of him. And, therefore, the spirit of Christ ultimately comes from the cross. And this is why meditation upon him there is central to the Christian life. That's why the gospel records, each of them, focus upon this hugely. Now, normally people die, especially 33-year-old males, die against their will. You may remember that Dallin Thomas uh, poem that about dying men, that they go not gentle into that good night, but rage Rage against the dying of the light. But the Lord gave his life. Not against his will, but of his will. And that, to me, is hugely significant. That he gave his life for me, for you. The mixed up believers, in, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, quotation marks, who were there standing afar off, across that no man's land. And the veil of the temple, verse 51, was torn. And, of course, Caiaphas, the high priest, has torn his clothes. And it's easy to think that, yeah, it's just making the point that the, the, the mosaic system was finished. And, yes, that was true. But Hebrews seems to pick up on this in a different way. It, it, there we're told that the, the veil has been, has been torn down, as happened on the cross from top to bottom, as if God did this, so that we might go into the most holy place. Now, why did the, the high priest go into the most holy place? It was, as Hebrews says, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So Hebrews is saying, look, each of us are no less than the high priest. Now, in terms of Judaism, this was incredible. But I'm just, you know, one ordinary little fellow who, who's, you know, in the mass, in the masses of, of you know, the people. Uh, but we're asked to be as the high priest. And what was the whole purpose of this? So that he went in and so that he made reconciliation of the sins of others. This is what we are called to do, to participate in the Lord's work, not to see it as, as sort of observers at a, at a show, looking from, from a distance, but to actually, to actually participate in it, in that we share this now with others. We do the Lord's work for others. This is why you can't be passive to reflecting upon the death of the Lord. That we have to take this 
to others to do something with it. And the graves were opened, uh, not in order for the bodies to climb out. This was a visual symbol. It's rather like the stone was rolled away from the Lord's grave. Not so that like he could get out. I mean, he could appear through walls, etc., as we know. Um, it was a visual symbol for the benefit of other people. And then the graves were sort of opened, and then when the Lord rose, they were opened for three days while the Lord was dead, and when he rose, people came out of the graves and appeared to others. Now, that was clearly to show that those who are identified with Jesus, with his death and resurrection, and this is the whole idea of, of baptism and life, identified with him, are therefore him. Now, when he rose from the, from the grave, he only appeared to selected private individuals on a private level. He did not sort of, the, 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 you know, here I am, told you so. It wasn't any of that. And yet he was the sign, this was the sign of the prophet Jonah. That Jonah was three days, three nights in, in the whale's uh, belly, and then he came out. And we're told that that is like the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, this will be a sign to you, to you unbelieving Jews. But it appears, at first blush, to break down. Because, well, he didn't show himself publicly. No, he himself didn't. But he was, he, he revealed himself in his resurrected form through people. And that's why I think that those people who rose from the dead and appeared to others were believers in him who had died fairly recently and were known in the city. And so we are him to this world. We are the resurrected Jesus. And really the whole uh, Christian message that there was this Jewish guy in Palestine whose mother got pregnant and it was from God. She's the only woman who got pregnant without, you know, without a bloke. And uh, she had this son who never sinned. Well, yeah, sin wasn't a big concept in uh, first century religion. Anyway, uh, and he was crucified. Yuck. He was crucified. So what sort of fellow was he? Not much. Anyway, then after three days he rose again. But um, nobody really saw him apart from those who'd already believed in him, apart from his buddies, his friends. Uh, anyway, and then 40 days later he went up to heaven. And if you get baptized into him and stake your life upon him, you can be forgiven, and when he comes back to earth, you can live forever. That message, even if it was backed up by miracles and so forth, that, that message as a message was not credible. I mean, who would want to believe that? If you're in Turkey or Greece or whatever, some small village never traveled more than 50 k's at the maximum from your birthplace, why get in trouble with the Romans for, for taking on this religion? The obvious question would have been, well, where's the body? Where is he? I want to see him. I want to talk to him. Then I might take you seriously. And that question, which was maybe the unspoken question, but is the question, where is he? Where's his body? Why am to the body? I want to see him. You know, the answer to that question was, and is, he's right in front of you. In me, in the Church of Christ, in the body of Christ into which we are baptized. That's why I submit that it was personal Christian testimony, which is what persuaded people, not so much the miracles. The Pentecostal movement has overemphasized miracles, miracles. Yeah, there were miracles, and they did confirm the spoken word. But the greatest witness was in the people. And this is why these people 
uh, rose from the grave. After three days, just when Jesus rose from the grave, these other people rose from the grave, and people could sort of guess that might be happening because their graves had been opened for three days, and they appeared to other people. They were the witnesses of the Lord's resurrection. Now, that's, uh, that was like going ahead of uh, ourselves, really. Um, verse 54, it says that the centurion and those that were with him watching Jesus, beholding Jesus. This is said so many times, is it not, in the records, that people watched, people looked at the, the crucified Jesus there on the cross. And this is because we all are doing the same. The records bring him before us yet again. And we are amongst those who are beholding him or watching him. Now the centurion and the, the soldiers that were with him feared greatly and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And that was, in, in terms of the, uh, the early church, that was the, the confessional statement. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And these men made it. Why were they so scared? Because it says that they had been the ones who beat up Jesus, who smashed his face in and nailed him. And they realized he was truly the Son of God, and they're frightened. What shall happen to us? Because they said, truly, this was the Son of God, and you can finish what was going on in their head. And I crucified him, and I spat in his face, and I knocked his teeth out, and I've got a bit of blood still on my fist of his. Now, they made the confession because there was a sense that they got, just as the repentant thief got this same sense, that in this death there is forgiveness even for me. Now, that is where I, I can believe the stories of the old missionaries who say, you know, sailed after some, some country, told the people about God, the Bible, and so forth. Didn't get anywhere until, so they, so the stories go, until they drew them a picture of the crucifixion, explained to them the cross, and then the penny dropped. Now, whether that was all really happened, I don't know, but I, I, I can, I can believe that. I can, that's credible to me, because there is something in, uniquely in the death of Jesus, in Him there, which ought to touch the conscience of every man and woman, and which clearly shows us that even my sins are, are no longer a barrier between God and man because of his death. Even if I punched him with my fist and I knocked his teeth out a few hours ago, and if it was me that took the hammer and nailed his hands, because of that death, even I can be forgiven. That's what the repentant thief thought, and that's what these guys thought as well. That's why I suggest that there is this um, confessional formula uh, that's used. Truly, this was the Son of God. To state, he, Jesus, is, was the Son of God, that meant in the early church, you're a believer. You are. You, you've made the statement. Now, Luke adds that people who watched it, who beheld it, smote their breasts and returned and it's the same word, returned, as used about repentance. They smote their breasts and repented. And smiting the breast, that's only used one other time. And again, uh, it's, uh, it's in Luke, and it's about the, 
the, uh, the, the man who beats upon his chest and says, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. In other words, he repents. So there is something there in the cross of Christ that elicits human repentance and conviction that I can be forgiven. Why is the repentance elicited? Because of the, the fact that's made obvious now that, and I can be forgiven. And so we may worry at times, I think, as, as long-term believers may be baptized many years, that what's happening to my conscience? I, I don't seem to get convicted of sin any longer. I don't feel real bad about sin. This is why we are to break bread regularly. This is why we are to continually think of him there. Because he there elicits this sense of forgiveness that really has been attained, and of course elicits therefore and thereby repentance, conscience of sin. This is why the cross of Christ, and as I put it, reconstructing it in our own minds, is so crucial. Uh, to the Christian life. Now, John notes that all those uh, beholding the crucified Jesus there were fulfilling Zechariah uh, 12 that, that says they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn in repentance, I think we could safely say. But going back to Zechariah 12 verse 10 in the Hebrew text, Let's just note the pronouns. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Well, who's talking in the context? It's God. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him, and shall be in bitterness for him as for an only son. So, it was in a sense God who was pierced. Jesus was not God himself in person. As you know, I'm the last bloke around here to be a Trinitarian. Jesus was not God himself, but God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. That the death of Jesus, I don't say it was the death of God, because God, like, you know, can't die, obviously, but God was intensely manifested in Jesus. Now, thinking about piercing, in other words, when they pierced Jesus, they pierced God, just like if it was your son, and you saw this when the final, you know, spear went in, like it would be into your heart as well. Luke 2, when Jesus is a cute little baby, comes to Simeon. Simeon says, Luke 2, uh, 35, that he's going to be uh, pierced. And he says to Mary, and a sword shall pierce your, your own heart also. And it seems to me that Mary therefore was at the cross. And she saw this. And maybe when John took her away, she came back and hid in the crowd sort of thing. That's usual uh, inquisitive uh, desire, love of a person. I want to see the end. I'm going to go home when it's not quite finished. So in the final piercing of Jesus, or maybe the piercing in the sense of, of, of the nailing, but certainly in the final spear thrust, you see a beautiful connection between the Father, God is pierced, when the son is pierced, and the mother, that Mary, Mary's heart was pierced, so Simeon predicted, when Jesus was pierced. You see a beautiful connection there, and in passing I would say that, that the whole idea of uh, personal pre-existence of Jesus, Trinity, Jesus equals God, all this kind of stuff, that, that ruins the beauty of this, and it is beautiful. In its own tragic, awful way, there is 
okay, beauty is a wrong concept, but um, something divine, something divine in that. Now, the women, it mentions in 55, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, they were there. And they weren't doing anything, they were just standing there. But the point is, they had followed him from Galilee, and they ministered to him there in Galilee. The idea is that even just standing there doing nothing, they were still ministering. And you take a message from that, they also serve who merely stand and wait. And that is so true. That is so true. So true. Prayer, love, standing mentally with someone as they're doing something that you can't do, maybe a, a mission trip, it may be all sorts of things, undergoing an operation. You are still there ministering to them and with them when apparently you're doing nothing. Now, it's emphasized in 56, there was Mary and Mary and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Three women were there at the cross. And also in the record of the burial, if you put the, uh, the, the records together, there's three women there. And also at the resurrection, if you put the records together, there's three women there. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Now, under Roman law, women couldn't be witnesses. But you see how God chose women to be witnesses. Those who had no credibility, humanly speaking. And that is the same with us. You may think, well, who am I? You know, who, who am I to be a witness? Uh, who am I to, to be a preacher, for example? No, no, there's far better people. People who are far more credible, far more qualified in that sense than myself. But this, again, is the stamp of how God works, that he uses the women, two or three of them, you know? Sometimes looking at putting the records together, depending who these all these different Marys are, and you can read my notes and see what I think about that, but let's not go there at the moment. Uh, you could argue there were two, you could argue there were three. That, again, I think is intentional, because it is, well, it's to elicit in us the idea, well, there were two or three women there. Two or three? Uh-huh. At the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. These were the witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. And they weren't men. And they weren't, in secular terms, in Roman terms, they were not credible witnesses. Now, 57. There came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He was also a disciple. And you see in that a huge grace. That we've had the disciples introduced to us at the cross, John and the ministering women, and now Joseph was also a disciple. But let's just think a little bit about Joseph, because he and Nicodemus were Sanhedrin members. And the record is very clear multiple times across all four Gospels that the decision to kill Jesus, and the whole process, the whole legal process that the Jews went through, was unanimously agreed. They all condemned him. They all did this, that, and the other. They all said he's worthy of death. And I think because they wanted to spread the, the guilt and responsibility, let's say, for what they were doing, they made sure. No one's abstaining, right? And yet we're told that, well, he didn't agree to what they had done. 
Yeah. So where and how did he not agree in his heart? Just like you and I so often, I don't agree with this, I strongly don't agree with it, but I go along with it. You know? And, of course, Nicodemus is, um, it, it was the same. Remember, three years ago, the Lord had met him at night. He'd come to him at night. And Jesus talks about that darkness. He says in John 3, uh, men love darkness. Everyone that does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his deed should be discovered. But he that does truth comes out in the light. And I think that it took three years for Nicodemus to finally do that. When he sees the crucified Jesus, that's it. He comes out, and so does, so does Joseph. Joseph groveled. He craved, very strong word the other records use, uh, Pilate for the body. Now, it was only close relatives who were allowed to have the body of the crucified. So he's saying, I'm in this man's family. I identify with him. And Nicodemus, we're told, bought 300 pounds of spices. And those miserable critics get hold of that and say, rubbish, couldn't have been so, because even the most elaborate burial of the Caesars, they didn't use that amount of spices. This would have been mounds and mounds of spices. Uh, where did he get all this from? And the cost of it was colossal, millions in our terms. So, okay, a bit of speculation here. But sun's going down, okay, when Jesus died and the Sabbath's coming on. Everyone's closed for business pretty well. You can imagine Joseph uh, running, sorry, Nicodemus running around, selling up everything he's got for crazy prices, very low prices, and buying all the spices that are in the market, all the spices that are anywhere. And 300 pounds of spices would have required a, a whole load of donkeys to transport them. He had to whistle those up from somewhere. This man running around, desperate, throwing away his money, his, his reputation, everything he had, for the sake of the crucified Jesus. And it's not as if you get the slightest whiff of the idea that he thought, yeah, well, you know, after three days he's going to rise again, and if I do this for him, well, I'm going to be in the good books, aren't I? No. It's quite clear from the records that no one really had a, any real understanding of the resurrection, possibly Mary Magdalene, but certainly nobody else. That's the impression that we get from the records. So he did this not in hope of any personal benefit later on, but because the cross of Christ motivated him to do that. Now, told that they, Joseph Nicodemus, they waited for the kingdom of God. But I, I would take that as meaning they were hoping, like the disciples on the way to Emmaus, they were hoping that Jesus was going to bring about the kingdom of God, but he got crucified, it didn't happen. And yet, out of love for him, and, and motivated by him there on the cross and seeing it all, they said, now nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. I want to respond to him, whether or not I will ever be saved, whether or not there will even be a kingdom. I love him, and I will give and stake my all for him, in respect to him who died, in the way that he died. Now, this is the power of the cross. This is why Paul keeps on about the preaching of the cross. The preaching, you could interpret that, which is the cross. Grammatically, it can stand that. Uh, interpretation. But the whole essence of Christ is his death for us and our response to it. That now nothing else matters. 
standing, etc., nothing. I mean, when we're told that they, they took him down from the cross, it, it actually seems to imply that, that they did this. They did this. They physically got up the ladder, got a body down. They certainly got blood on their hands. And Jews at Passover time were paranoid about defilement. You remember, even the Jews who crucified Jesus were paranoid they would be made unclean, couldn't keep the Passover. And yet... That didn't matter. Don't care about keeping the Jewish law. Don't care about all that. Don't care about everyone gasping that we as Sanhedrin members are doing this, making fools of ourselves. In the uninspired Acts of Pilate, which is a sort of apocryphal book, it says that the Jews afterwards put Joseph in prison. And uh, Josephus in Wars of the Jews, he also talks about Nicodemus. Uh, And uh, he he, uh, quotes uh, from the Talmud that uh, this Nacdemon, or Nicodemus as we have it, was one of the three richest nobles in Jerusalem. And the Talmud also mentions a story in uh, Ketuboth about the daughter of Nicodemus. And there's this story about this uh, rabbi, Johanan ben Zakkai, that he's riding on his donkey outside Jerusalem and he sees this poor young beggar woman. And he could see that she's from a from wealth. She had been from wealth, and she's just begging. And he says, who are you? And she says, I'm the daughter of that Nicodemus guy. In other words, I don't know whether these stories are true or not. I don't know, but uh, it, they're sort of imaginable. And I think what you see there is the real message of giving. You can give knowing that, yeah, well, next month, next year, I'll be back to, uh, financially, I'll be back to, to, to the level. Um, but this was giving in terms of absolute loss. This was giving like merely breaking the, 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 the precious ointment. Giving knowing that this is irre- irreplaceable. Knowing that I am really minus now for the rest of my life. This is giving. And all this was motivated, this giving, this real giving, this a total giving, absolute giving, radical giving uh, of, of, of ourselves, what we have, not just money, but but wealth, material things, uh, giving of ourselves in a radical sense uh, for others, knowing that this shall never in this life be recompensed. And even without thinking about recompense, or thinking, yeah, well, if I give that to the Lord, well, when he comes back, I shall be in a pretty good good place with him. No, you see, these guys were doing this, as I said, not motivated by anything like that, not motivated by the, the hope that uh, I might... I might just sort of get this back. Not at all. Now, as I say, Joseph taking the body uh, and uh, taking it down, uh, it implies, the record implies, that that, that he did this with his own hands. Again, publicly humiliating himself in front of everybody. And, you know, this is really what identification with Jesus is about. This is why you can't really be a secret disciple. God in his grace in the record says that he was also, they were also disciples, just like the women who stood publicly by the cross were disciples. But you kind of can't stay that way. The city set on the hill cannot be hid. And eventually, providence God's hand in our lives, your spiritual growth, comes to a point where, in the end, you do come out. 
where in the end secret discipleship is not possible. And I've had this question so many times, baptizing people in, in hardline Muslim countries who've said, well, I'm scared stiff if I tell other people, my family, I could be killed, I'd certainly be thrown out of the family, huge persecution, is it okay if I don't tell anyone about my baptism? Is it okay if occasionally I just go to the mosque? And I say, yeah, well, over to you. But I always say, but it won't stay like that. And it doesn't. They either lose their faith or they go the other way. But they come out. And that is the same with all of us, living in whatever society you're living in, working with whatever bunch of guys you're working with, being in whatever social family situation you're in. In the end, you can't be secret. In the end, you come out. Because, again, the cross of Christ leads you in a position whereby you cannot be passive to that at all. Well, verse 60 it says there that Joseph uh, departed. He rolled the, the, the stone at the door of the sepulchre and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting opposite the sepulchre. This is an example of what I would call Matthew as the cameraman. It's as if the focus of his camera is on Joseph and of Joseph walking away. But in the background, blurred a little bit, but in the background, you've got the two women. This is very much, even maybe Matthew himself was not there, but the, the records are designed for us to play what dear Harry Whitaker used to call Bible television. They are designed in that way that we can relive them. And this whole thing with the crucifixion of the Lord, unpleasant and as it is, and it's unpleasant partly because of the physicality of it, but also partly because it demands so much of us. These records are designed so that this is the movie that you keep on replaying in your own mind. And that is what we've done for the last half an hour. But the challenge is to do that day by day. May God bless each and every one of us as we replay that movie, as we live it all again, and that we might be like Joseph and Nicodemus and the centurion and the soldiers and the thief on the cross and respond. <laughs>